Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. If, uh, if you're a guest, welcome. I hope that you have a good time with us this morning, and a uh, special welcome to all of those of us who are not on a long weekend holiday. It's good to see you. No one thought that was funny. Sorry. Is that a sore topic? Okay. <laughs> Great. Um, I, I'm, I'm certainly feeling uh, the pressure this morning. Okay, let me just put a timer on here. There we go. I, I'm feeling the pressure this morning because um, what a day to be able to open up God's Word together. Um, but no pressure because there's so much to say. And truth be told, I, there is so much I want to say. Um, but I want, I want to try and keep it um, simple. Um, but if you would permit me just two minutes just to make a little segue. Does anyone know what these are? These are mine. No. Uh, anyone know what these are? Easter eggs. Okay. Uh, do, these, do we find Easter eggs in the Bible? No. But we do find ourselves in a culture where this is happening all around us, this whole weekend, today especially. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you. Kids, you need to ask your parents if you're allowed one. Parents, you need to ask the person next to you if you're allowed one. But if anyone would like one, we're going to pass this around. Feel free to take one. You have my permission even now to start snacking on one. If you don't want, if you want your kids to have one now, but give it to mom and dad and to hold it on for a bit later, that's also fine. I'm going to start the meeting with some sugar. Sorry. But uh, anyone, you want to pass these around, buddy? You can start. Take the basket. If anyone would like one, ask parents. Ask parents. One at a time. Move it around. There we go. This is an exercise in patience. <laughs> okay. There we go. You want your sweets. Okay. So, the reason why... It's over there, buddy. There we go. Now, the reason why I'm starting off with a little bit of chaos, um, it, it's, I don't want to tie this in at the end and try and say, well, this is biblical. I'm, I don't think that this is, is, a, is a biblical thing. But the reality is we're in a culture where so much of today is about this. So especially kids, but even adults, this is something I'm trying to do for myself. So I invite you to join with me. Why, kids, why do you birds lay eggs? Why do snakes lay eggs? Why does the platypus lay an egg? Anyone? To make babies, right? And so if you look at an egg, inside of the egg, is there life? Yes. Can you see that life? No. You can't see that life. It's inside. You can't see the little baby. And so every time I'm going to eat a chocolate Easter egg, it's got nothing to do with Jesus, but it's an opportunity for me to sit back and say, hang on, I believe in life. I believe that today Jesus rose from the dead and there is life for Jesus and there is life for me. Now I'm going to take it one further. I kind of wish that we could have brought my favorite Easter eggs. Anyone got a favorite Easter egg? Okay. It's the white ones. Exactly. Now, what I learned as a, as a, as a child was, right, as a, as a little guy, this is a competition, <laughs> right? The competition is who gets to make that last the longest? Because once your siblings, your sister and your brother have finished theirs, you get to carry on. 
right? And you end up with the white all around you. Anyone? Okay. Right. So you've got to see who can make that last the longest. Now, I also hated them the most out of all of them. You want to know why? They're hollow. What? Why would they leave it empty, full of air? So my favorite is also my worst. So these days, they've actually, you pay a lot of money, but you get solid eggs. It's very exciting. Now, what I want you to think of, every time you eat one of those hollow eggs and you're like, it's empty, guess what else is empty? Jesus' tomb, right? His grave. He's not there. Where is he? He's alive, and he's in heaven, and he's coming back, and he's going to make things right. Now, that has nothing to do with the Bible, right? They're eggs, but it's an opportunity I'm trying to take in my day. Every time I say, mm, chocolate, give me more. It's just a hang on, back up. This is life. There is an empty tomb. There's resurrection life for Jesus, and there's resurrection life for you and I. Okay, kids, what does an egg represent? Life. And if it's empty, what do we think? Empty tomb. Nice. Good job. Okay. Now, there we go. Okay. And for those of you who are saying, where's the Bible? All right. Here we go. We're going we're gonna to start in the Bible. So we're actually going through a series at the moment uh, through the book of Daniel. Now, I apologize, parents. There's going to be some sugar high. Thanks. Thanks. I could have done it at the end and said, enjoy your car trip home, but I didn't. Okay. Um, so we've been going through the book of Daniel, and we're actually going to continue with the book of Daniel today. We're going to go into Daniel chapter 3, and actually I think it's very relevant to Easter. I think it's very relevant to resurrection life. Now, before we do that, uh, we're going to be talking about statues. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to build this big statue, um, and so I would love for us to watch a quick little video. Uh, does anyone know what the tallest statue in the world is? I think you might be so Statue of Liberty. <laughs> no. All right. So let's, let's uh, watch this video. Let's see if you were right. Phones. Does anyone have a concept of how tall 182 meters is? And that's crazy tall. So um, I don't know if you noticed, there were very few statues from Africa there. They included the one on the, the Sphinx, if, it, if you consider that a statue. Does anyone know what the tallest statue in Africa is? Yeah, probably, probably. The, the tallest one is the African Renaissance Monument in Senegal. It's 52 meters tall. And that was unveiled in 2010, and so the president at the time, uh, the quote, um, talking about the statue, says, it brings life to our common destiny. Africa has arrived in the 21st century standing tall and more ready than ever to take its destiny into its hands. So they built this huge statue, this huge monument, and it represents Something. It represents Africa moving forward into the future, uh, not relying on anyone else, but taking its destiny to, into its own hands. So there's just a few that I want to mention that we have seen up in the video. There was the Motherland Monument. That was that huge statue. It had a sword and a little shield that it was holding up over there. Uh, unveiled in 1981. That's in Ukraine. And it commemorates, as far as I understand, there's, there's a whole museum that goes along with it, but it commemorates the soldiers that fought and died in the Second World War. Very similar to the motherland calls 
um, monument also in Russia, um, commemorating the soldiers that fought and died in the Second World War. Um, the statue of Confucius uh, we saw there in, in China. There's many statues of Confucius, actually. Um, but this new one's 2018, um, that it was unveiled, and uh, it's the statue of the Chinese philosopher, Confucius. Um, and as far as I can understand, it's the hope that the statue will attract international attention to promote Chinese culture. Uh, the Statue of Liberty, right? Anyone know when that was uh, unveiled or dedicated, commemorated? As far as I can see, it's 1886. It was quite some time ago, and, and many of you will know what the Statue of Liberty is about, but yes, it represents liberty and independence, and it's actually in, in the harbor to be a welcome to immigrants who are arriving in the USA by sea. And then, then there's the last one, the Statue of Unity in India, um, 182 meters tall, it's massive, um, and that was inaugurated in 2018, so it's, it's quite recent, um, and it depicts an Indian statesman, an independence activist, I can't pronounce his first name, so it's Mr. Patel, we'll just leave it at that, um, and amongst other things, he's highly respected for his leadership in uniting 562 princely states into one united union of India. And so it represents the unity in India. Now, all of these statues represent something. And so if you were to deface or attack one of these statues, it wouldn't be so much that you're attacking or defacing the concrete or the bronze or the metal that it was made out of. It would be attacking the things that they represent. Right? So if you were to, say, attack a statue or deface a statue of Lionel Messi, I don't know, maybe you don't like Lionel Messi, maybe he's come to represent something you don't like, it might cause a little bit of a stir, it might get into the newspapers somewhere, but I'm pretty sure if you were to deface or attack the Statue of Liberty, it would cause quite a stir, not because you've done exactly the same thing, but because of what it represents, to whom those things are very valuable. And so to attack the Statue of Liberty would be an attack on the liberty that all Americans prize or something like that. And so buildings and statues can be powerful symbols of values and ideals. And so we're going to read Daniel chapter 3. And you're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar sets up this big image, this big statue. And it's tempting for us to say, oh, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, whatever it was, you know, it's such an archaic practice. We don't do that these days. Really? Don't we? I think we do. We build them bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And they represent things and they embody things that are very powerful and meaningful for us. Now, we might not bow down to them necessarily, but perhaps metaphorically, we do. Would you agree that in, in America, many Americans would prize liberty, would prize freedom, would be willing to fight for something like freedom? Actually, they're totally, ad, abscri uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ascribing to those values. They're living by those values. They're embodying those values. They're taking on those values. They're maybe not bowing down, but perhaps it's not such a far step to say they're adhering to those values. So let's open up in Daniel chapter 3. Um, I don't have it on the screen behind me, so I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles. I'm sorry if you have the good old pen and paper version, or maybe you have the app in front of you, Daniel chapter 3. 
And we're continuing the story. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he's king of Babylon, big bad Babylon. If you haven't been with us, they're the world's superpower. They've taken over nation, over nation, over nation, over nation. And all these nations are then serving this one big king and one big state of Babylon. So King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. Anyone? 60 cubits? What does that mean? Anyone got a translation there? No, where's your Bible? 27 meters. Got a Bible translation? You might have a little number or a little letter next to it, and you're going to look down at the footer, and it will tell you it's feet or meters. So it's about 27 meters tall, and its breadth was six cubits. So that's about 2.7 meters wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now remember, this is a long time ago. This thing is enormous. And you set it up on a plane, you're going to see this thing for miles and miles and miles. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials. Of the, that's a long list of people. And you're going to notice in the story here, we're going to have a lot of lists, very long lists. And you might think, why are we going? I, I think the point is to show almost the silliness of it. We get to these silly long lists. And so the author here, this, the writer, is trying to get across a point. This is starting to get silly now. Right? So Nebuchadnezzar sends officials to gather all of the uh, these people of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the, here's the list, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Right, so three times now already we can see Nebuchadnezzar set up an image. We're trying to make a point here. Right, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. <laughs> I think he set up an image. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the... Oh, no, here comes another set list. The sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and this is terrible, and every kind of music... You are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever fall, who does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. It's a bit excessive. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music... All the peoples, all the nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I'm going to pause there for a moment. So I want to make two points this morning. So the first point I want to talk about is living in exile, living in a foreign culture, living as people who we serve one king, but the dominant culture around us is serving another king, living in a different kingdom. And so remember that in uh, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about an image. It's this huge image, terrifying image, totally unsettled Nebuchadnezzar. And he doesn't know what this dream means. And eventually, Daniel comes and God gives him wisdom to interpret the dream. And so he explains and interprets the dream to Nebuchadnezzar using the language of 
Genesis chapter 1, where God gives dominion to humankind, whom He has made in His image. And so we're made in God's image, and given the dominion that God has, He's given to us to steward His creation. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar embodies the very corruption of all of humankind and all the kingdoms that will follow, the corruption, the warpedness, the twistedness, the brokenness inside of us. We will always take this dominion that God has given us in a broken way, and we will leave a trail of brokenness behind us as we dominate God's good creation, as we steward our relationships and our lives. And things may start off on a good footing, right? Good intentions. But as the saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We can't get away from that. That's just the history of humankind. And so God puts his finger on this. And so Nebuchadnezzar, having in chapter 2 said, oh, I realize that God is the God of all the gods, and He's the Lord of all the lords. And the very first verse of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image. I don't, he's just, he's not learning his lesson. And so Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image representing his ideals, representing his value system, and all the nations, all the peoples, all the languages, everybody, high and low, are to then submit to this image and worship this image, adhere to the values and the standards that this image represents. Verse 8, therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. It's a great way to address a king. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the fairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Have we met them before? Right? So Daniel, remember Daniel 2, the king's going to kill all the wise men. Daniel goes to his three friends. Daniel chapter 1, the friends who were with him, who faithfully, they were faithful to God. They didn't defile themselves with the king's food. Right? We've got these three friends going through another test, another trial. Right? These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, gosh, that just seems a little bit excessive, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning 
fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Do you think Nebuchadnezzar's maybe got delusions of grandeur? I, I think perhaps he's elevating himself to the place of, I have power over the gods. What god can save you from my hand? He thinks he's the main man, the head honcho, even though in the chapter before he just acknowledged that actually God is. And so let's talk about a second point, faithfulness. What does faithfulness to God look like when you are living in exile? In a culture that has values, that it places above your values, values that actually become ultimate, right? We can say freedom is a good thing, but can we extend freedom to the place where it's above God, when it becomes God? Absolutely. Can we say hard work is a good thing? Yes, we can. Can we make hard work ultimate and make it into an idol and push it beyond its realm of legitimacy? Yes, we can. We can take anything, any good value, and push it beyond what is it intended to, beyond what God defines as good, and we can make that ultimate. Essentially, we're making that an idol. And so what does faithfulness to God look like in a culture that doesn't recognize our values and wants to impose its values on us? Verse 16, it's a good question. Let's have a look and see if we can find an answer. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <laughs> what, a, what a great answer, right? Okay, king, let's, let's enter into a bit of a debate over here. Right? Do you remember in the last chapter when you said, no, it's none of that, there's an opportunity here for them to stick their finger up his nose just before they die. You filthy pagan worshiping king, don't you know that? None of that. This is the most polite and respectful resistance you are possibly ever going to see. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Verse 17, if this be so, if you're going to throw us into the fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. End. <laughs> what a great way to resist a culture that is pressing you. Right? We, we have as followers of Jesus, being placed into a culture that doesn't recognize the kingship and the authority of Jesus, and now we are faced with options. Do we, do we assimilate into the culture? Do we just participate? Do we take on the values of the world around us? Do we isolate ourselves entirely so that we don't have to have this difficulty? Do we take our kids away from everything to keep them safe and pure and, and, and just isolate ourselves entirely? Or do we, like Daniel and his friends, engage in the culture, dress like they do, maybe even sound like they do, but there are some things where we just say no, politely, no, we won't. It's the knife edge 
of faithfulness. And a knife edge is, is narrow. <laughs> and you, you don't want to go into isolation and you don't want to go into assimilation. You want to stay faithful. And that's a difficult thing to do. And that, I think, is what the story of Daniel, the book of Daniel, is encouraging us to do, is to maintain a knife-edge faithfulness to God. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. That's just like a toddler, right? When does a toddler break out into a rage? When it doesn't get its way, <laughs> right? And so now we have Nebuchadnezzar who controls the whole world but can't control these flippin' people. And so now, now, he's, now he's angry. And the expression of his face was changed. I'm a visual thinker. Can you see that face? It writes in the twisting and the... He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than what it was usually heated. It's ridiculous. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats. Very cool. And their other garments. Right? This is just, this is a, a hasty, got to do just as is. We're just going to tie you up right now. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? Their, their lives are expendable. The king doesn't, it, he holds no value in people's lives. So whoever, you die, you die, you die. It's just what I want. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. What? He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? What do you, I mean, how would you answer this guy? Yes, O king. <laughs> True, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth one is like a son of the gods. Right? That's a, a, a common way for someone in that ancient time period, in that area, to talk about some kind of divine being as a son of the gods. There's something divine, angelic over here. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, Okay. Come out and come here. <laughs> He's still barking orders, this guy. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together. And they saw that the, fi the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. I love that. The king thinks he has power, but he doesn't. Who has the power? God does. God does. Who's the king? Nebuchadnezzar? Oh, God, God is king over Nebuchadnezzar. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. They don't have to get changed. They can carry on. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his Angel. So now he's changed his mind. It's, now it's an, it's an angel. And delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies 
rather than serve and worship any God except their own. They yielded up their bodies. Do we know of someone who yielded up their body to God? Yeah, Jesus did. Therefore, I make a decree. <laughs> it's just like the toddler again. I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. I mean, that is so unnecessary. If God is able to rescue them from him, he doesn't need to defend them and start to... Anyway, right. So, the king then promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And that's Daniel chapter 3. Hey, what a great story. Now, what are we to do with this story? Right? What? Why? What? Why do we gather on a Sunday to listen to this? Why should you and I read this as divinely inspired scripture of meaning and application and value to our lives, right? Should, are, are, we, are we getting ready to go and jump into something that's going to cause us death and believe God to save and rescue us? There, there is a lot that we can take out here, and I just want to take out one thing for the sake of time. Does this mean, does this story mean that you and I will be rescued from every trial? What do we do with the Christians who were burned at the stake for their faith? Are their family members, do they have a right to go to God and say, but God, in your Bible, you rescued these people, but you didn't rescue my parents, my friends, my siblings from fire, right? What do we do with Daniel in the lion's den? He gets rescued from the mouths of the lions, and then we have all of those Christians who were thrown to the wild animals in the Roman circuses and torn to pieces, God, where were you there? Is Daniel trying to tell us that we are going to be saved and rescued from trials? If anything, I think the book of Daniel is showing us that we should, as exiles, expect trials and difficulties. We've got Daniel chapter 1, we've got Daniel and his friends who face the trial of, are you going to eat the king's food and be defiled or not? and face some difficulties, and they pass that trial. We've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Are you going to bow the knee? Because they could have just said, you know what, we live to fight another day. We'll bow the knee, but God, you know, I don't mean it in my heart, and, and they, they pass that test, and we're going to find more tests and trials coming. When you live in a culture that places other things above your own values and expects you to abide by them, when it's against the very thing that God wants, you're going to find those trials coming your way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, our God is able to save us. And even if He does not, we want you to know, O King, we will not bow down to your image of gold. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, just please flick there. Maybe an app. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. This is the Apostle Peter, and he's writing to a church that's living under a different king that is oppressive, dominating. This is Caesar, and we've got the churches who are scattered all over the place, and he addresses those Christians, those churches, as exiles. And then he says, in chapter 2, verse 20, he's talking about suffering and enduring hardship. And he says, what credit is it when you sin 
and are beaten for it? What, what credit is it if you are driving drunk and you get thrown into jail and you endure? No. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21, for to this you have been called. I don't like that. Can we cross this out? There must be a translation problem here. Hey, to this you have been called, suffering for doing good and enduring. This is what you have been called to, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. I really want someone to tell me that Christ suffered for me so that I don't have to. Wouldn't that be nice? Peter says, he left us an example. He suffered, and you are to suffer too, and endure it, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When his murderers stuck him to that cross with nails through his body and heaved him up to die an excruciating, torturous death. What did he do? He prayed. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But... And if you've got a pen here, you can underline this. If you've got a highlighting option, highlight this in your app. He continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. In the face of slow, imminent death, he entrusted himself to God. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before, and he's sweating blood, and he's agonized to the point of death, saying, God, I don't want to do this. If it's possible, take this cup away from me. But not my will be done, but your will be done. Not because, God, you're a sicko. I'm, I'm entrusting myself to you, God. I believe that you are in charge, that you are king. You are able. You have a good plan here. You will make things right in the end. There's our Christian hope. That God will complete and make things right at the end. His work will be finished. And so he entrusted himself to God. As Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego entrusted themselves to God and went into that burning fire, Jesus entered into the burning fire and was completely engulfed and swallowed up by the righteous judgment of God. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins. He carried our sin. He took on our sin in his body on the tree, on the cross. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his words, by his wounds, I beg your pardon, you have been healed. See, Good Friday, what's good about it? It's a terrible Friday. It's terrible. An innocent man, an innocent God is murdered. 
In fact, He takes on our sin. My sin deserved His crucifixion. Your sin deserved His crucifixion. It's what you and I have done, and the corruption in our hearts and the curse that you and I carry is deserving of what Jesus went through. That is terrible. That is horrifying. It is so unjust. It's horrifying because that's what's inside of us, and it's horrifying because God took that upon Himself in the person of Jesus. But it's such good news as well. It is such good news because you and I are free of that curse of sin and death. It's dealt with. It's finished. I don't know what you're carrying with you and the things that you might do tomorrow and the next day and in 10 years' time. And you might think, I never thought I would ever do that. Why? What? I'd, I'm a terrible person. I, whatever it is that you're going to carry one day, it's been dealt with. It's been de- the power of that thing has been dealt with. You may still live with the consequences, but now there is opportunity for resurrection life, new life, new hope, new day, new day, Sunday. Whatever comes in life, there is new day waiting. Now, here's the question. Did Jesus save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flames? Did they go into the flames? Yes, they did. So in a way, God didn't save them from the flames. But they weren't harmed by the flames, and they came out untouched. So there is a degree to which God saved them from the flames. Did God save Jesus from death? No, He went through it all. But did He save Him from death? Yes, He did. You can't keep the author of life from living, the one who gives life from not coming to life again. And so here's the question. Will God save you from death? Well, no, but yes. Unless Jesus returns soon, all of us are going to die here. But are we left in death? No. So we will be saved from death one day completely. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead will raise you and I. In the same body that Jesus had, this glorified body, we will have that same body as Jesus. There is resurrection hope for those who've put their faith in Jesus Christ. Easter Sunday is a great day. Not because everything's going to be good from here on out. No, we will suffer. And we are to follow the example of Jesus in our suffering. But God entrusted Himself fully into the one who will save. And we are to entrust ourselves fully to the one who will save and make things right ultimately at the end. Which means we are able to look hardship in the eye. We are able to look death in the eye and say, and so? Because one day you're going down. And one day you will have no power over me anymore. And we will have that resurrection life. Now, this is nice in theory, isn't it? This is very nice in theory. But when push comes to shove and trials come your way and you lose money or family or your life or take physical pain or whatever it is and it comes at a cost, I think the book of Daniel is reminding us to stay faithful. You can do this. God is faithful. He is able to come through for you. And even if He does not now, ultimately and fully one day, He will. He will. 
And I don't know if that's encouraging to you or not. I find that partially encouraging, and then I think of examples, and, I, and then I think, oh, I don't, that sounds a bit scary. And so I, I find a tension and a wrestle. Maybe your faith is greater than mine. Maybe this enables you to take on the whole world. And I pray that it does. And I pray that for those of us who maybe struggle with a little bit of, will I stay faithful? What about this? I don't know what I would do. I need to access the grace of God in those moments. And so I want to invite us now to take communion in a moment. love for us to come back to our seats once we've got the bread and the juice. We can take this together. These are powerful symbols. Yeah, Easter eggs. Man. This, these are powerful symbols. Jesus' body was broken so that you and I might have life. Jesus' blood was poured out for us. His blood of the covenant, a new covenant. What's the covenant? If we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, that He will take that sin, that curse of death and sin, and take away the power of sin and death, and give us resurrection life. Life now, but also life one day. It's going to be a great day when all of those who have died in the faith will be resurrected together as Jesus was. And so I've been mulling over the scripture for, I don't know, the last day. This has been very powerful to me. I'd like to share it with you. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15. Jesus died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake was raised. Jesus was raised for our sake. And He died so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for Him. And I think communion is an opportunity to say, God, help me to live for You. As we live in exiles, we live in a culture that increasingly all these values are being placed that are actually against Your values. They're against You. The culture wants us to bend the knee to say actually that these things are more valuable than my faith in God. God, help me to stand firm for you. Help me to live, not for myself, not for other things, but to live for you. You were raised for my sake and to take hope and courage and strength from that. So can I invite you to fetch some juice and some bread at the back then return to your seats and we can take communion together and we'll pray together and sing one last song. I invite you to stand with me. I think maybe that's a, it's a good symbol, right? And, and the culture that we live in under the various trials and pressures and challenges that we face, God, we want to stand. We don't just want to stand for God, but we want to stand with God. We want to stand in faith. And so I just want to read this again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Jesus died for all that those who live might, not, might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake was raised. Father, this morning we gather together to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. We thank You for the power of a new life. We thank You, Father, that You are committed to Your children, Your creation. You have not left us to our own devices. You have not left this world, abandoned this world. But God, you are committed to making things right and renewing all things, reconciling all things to yourself. 
God, you see every challenge we face, whether it's health, financial, family, psychological, spiritual, whatever it is, God, you see every challenge. And we don't want to live for ourselves. We want to live for you. You died for us so that we might have freedom from sin, freedom from death, and the power of a new resurrection life. And so as we, as we look at this bread, God, we thank you for the body of Jesus that was broken. And we eat this bread now in remembrance of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the death of Jesus, the blood of the covenant for us. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. And we drink this juice now in remembrance of the work of Jesus. And not only, Lord, do we drink in remembrance, but it's a proclamation. Your word says that when we eat and drink this bread and this juice, we proclaim the death of Jesus until his return. Thank you that you've not left this world. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that we get to be vehicles of your redemptive work in this world. Thank you, God, that we don't just have to hunker down and hold out, but we can maintain faithfulness to you and participate in the work of redemption that you are doing in our world. Help us not to live for ourselves, but for you, to participate in your redeeming work. Empower us, Lord. Strengthen us. Enable us. Give us grace. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts of faith to trust in you. Thank you, Lord.